everybody. Welcome to the Four Pillar Fitness Podcast. This is Coach Phil Houston. I'm behind the mic again today, and I'm bringing you another episode of Research Roundup. Uh, we're going to get to that in just a minute. Uh, just want to let you all know how you can reach me. You can certainly reach out to me through the podcast at anchor.fm uh, and leave me a voice message if you want. That's pretty cool. Um, you can also reach me via Instagram at, at Coach Phil Houston. Spell the last name right, H-U-E-S-T-O-N. Uh, also at through uh, Twitter at Phil Houston again spell last name right H U E S T O N. Uh, lots of folks spell that wrong, by the way. That's why I keep telling you that. Um, and also get on my email list. Um, beginning in June, we're going to be offering some up regular updates, some fitness and health tips, uh, some really cool stuff, plus some exclusive email newsletter list only content that you will not be able to get on my website, nor will you find here on the podcast. So some pretty cool stuff there. Um, and just some general housekeeping, if you're listening to us on iTunes uh, and you like what you hear, drop us a five-star rating, leave a comment, let other folks know there's some value here. Um, I see a lot of you listening to the podcast and downloading the podcast and not interacting at all, leaving any kind of comments. I would really appreciate it if you did. Uh, it would help us spread the word. Um, thanks very much for that. And now on to today's research roundup. Uh, we've got three research studies to go through today, and they're all related to your teenagers. So if you're a parent or a uh, someone who works with teenagers, you definitely want to catch these three. They're pretty interesting. Um, first up uh, is a study from the U University of Zurich, which has shown something pretty interesting about antisocial teens. Um, wait a minute, isn't that most teenagers antisocial? Nah, I'm just kidding. Anyway, however, um, teenage girls with antisocial behavior have exhibited altered brain activity in this study. It's kind of an interesting thing here. So teenage girls with problematic social behavior have displayed reduced brain activity and weaker connectivity between the brain regions implicated in emotion regulation. Um, these findings and others now offer a neurobiological explanation for the difficulties some girls have in controlling their emotions and provide indications for possible therapy approaches. So kind of interesting there. Becoming a teenager obviously means going through a lot of emotional stuff, right? You got physical changes going on, behavioral changes, all in the context of heightened emotionality. Uh, for everyday social functioning, as well as for personal, physical, and mental well-being, it's important that your teenagers are able to recognize, process, and control the emotions that they're going through. Um, for a lot of young people who are diagnosed with conduct disorder, this process is very difficult, and it may lead to some antisocial or aggressive reactions that clearly lie outside what's normal for their age. Some of these reactions can include swearing, hitting, stealing, and lying, among others, right? Um, an international team of researchers from Switzerland, Germany, and England have been able to demonstrate using functional magnetic resonance imaging or fMRI <clears throat> that these behavioral difficulties are reflected in the brain activity of these girls. Uh, the study involved almost 60 female teenagers between 15 and 18. Uh, they were asked to try to actively regulate their emotions while the researchers measured their brain activity. Half of the group had previously been diagnosed with a conduct disorder while the other half showed pretty typical social development for their age. Um, and the girls that had problematic social behavior there was a reduced activity seen in the prefrontal and temporal cortex and uh, where the brain regions responsible for cognitive processes are located. Um, in addition, those regions were also less connected to other brain regions that were relevant for motion processing and cognitive control. Uh, so here's what Professor Nora Raschel of the University of Zurich had to say about the study. Uh, quote, our results offer the first neural explanation for deficits in emotion regulation in teenage girls. The difference in the neural activities between the two test groups could indicate fundamental differences in emotion regulation. However, it could also be due to delayed brain development in participants with conduct disorders. So we've got to be aware of that, right? Sometimes uh, brain development is a little bit delayed for a lot of different reasons. So what does it all mean? Um, there are indications for therapy. 
right? So treatment for young people diagnosed with conduct disorders may target several levels. Uh, we wanna help them recognize and process and express their emotions, as well as to learn emotional regulation skills. Uh, Rachel says, fi our findings indicate that an increased focus on emotion regulation skills may be beneficial. We will investi investigate in future studies cognitive behavioral intervention programs that aim to enhance emotion regulation in girls with conduct disorder and see whether brain function and behavior may change accordingly. That's from Christina, Christina Stadler of the Child and Adolescent Psychiatric Center in Basel, Switzerland. So it hasn't been investigated whether male teenagers with conduct disorder show similar brain activity during emotion regulation, but according to the authors, there are several indicators that the neural characteristics of conduct disorders may be gender specific. So very interesting there. However, most studies, unlike, unlike theirs, have really paid attention to young men. Um, and for that reason, the neurobiological understanding established up to now is mainly related to, to males. So if your kids are showing some antisocial behavior, chances are there's parts of their brain that aren't working uh, or aren't working well and aren't connected. How about that? All right, onto our next, onto our next study, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, this one really should be a no-brainer. It makes a lot of sense just generally speaking, but especially when we talk about teens, that makes sense as well. They get better and longer sleep with exercise. This is from the folks at Penn State University. Um, and the tagline says, getting more exercise than normal or being more sedentary than usual for one day may be enough to affect sleep later that night, according to the new study led by Penn State. So this is a one-week micro-longitudinal study. The researchers found that when teenagers got more physical activity than they usually did, they got to sleep earlier, slept longer, and slept better that night. In truth, if you're a parent, you probably already know this, and you're wondering why money was spent to study this. Hopefully, the rest of this info will clear that up for you. <clears throat> and specifically, the team found that for every extra hour of moderate to vigorous physical activity, so that could be anything from lifting weights and working out to playing tag to riding their bikes you know, for long distance, the teens fell asleep 18 minutes earlier, slept 10 minutes longer, and had about 1% greater sleep maintenance efficiency that night. There are people who do this for a living and figure out how well you're sleeping, what your sleep maintenance efficiency is. Anyway, Lindsay Master, who's a data scientist at Penn State, said, quote, adolescence is a critical period to obtain adequate sleep, as sleep can affect cognitive and classroom performance, stress, and eating behaviors. Our research suggests that encouraging adolescents to spend more time exercising during the day may help their sleep health later that night. In contrast, one of the things that the researchers found um, was that being sedentary more during the day was associated with worse sleep health. Um, when the same participants were sedentary for more minutes during the day, they fell asleep and woke up later, but slept for a shorter amount of time overall. Uh, so one of the things that was said about the findings is that they help illuminate the complex relationship between physical activity and sleep. Um, Orphew Buxton, who's a professor of biobehavioral health at Penn State, said, you can think of these relationships between physical activity and sleep almost like a teeter-totter. When you're getting more steps, essentially, your sleep begins earlier, expands in duration, and is more efficient. Whereas if you're spending more time sedentary, it's like sitting on your sleep health, sleep length and quality goes down. So while previous research suggested that adolescents need eight to 10 hours of sleep a night, recent estimates suggest that as many as 73% of them are getting less than eight hours a night. So some of this research has also found that people who are generally more physically active tend to sleep longer and have better sleep quality, something that we've already known for years in the fitness field. 
but the researchers said less has been known about whether day-to-day -day changes in physical activity and sedentary behavior affected sleep length and quality. So for this study, they put together 417 participate, participants excuse me, in the Fragile Families and Child Wellbeing Study, a national cohort from 20 United States cities. So a pretty well spread out study. When the participants were 15 years old, they wore accelerometers on their wrists and hips to measure sleep and physical activity for a week. So uh, well, one of the things that Masters said about the study is one of the strengths of the study was using the devices to get precise measurements about sleep and activity instead of asking them about their own behavior, which could sometimes be skewed. The hip device measured activity during the day and the wrist device measured what time the participants fell asleep and woke up and also how efficiently they slept, which means how often they were sleeping versus tossing and turning. So in addition to finding a bunch of links between how physical activity affects sleep later that night, the researchers also found connections between sleep and activity the following day. They found that when participants slept longer and woke up later, they engaged in less moderate to vigorous physical activity and sedentary behavior the next day. This finding can be related to a lack of time and opportunity the following day, Master said. We can't know for sure, but it's possible that if you're sleeping later into the day, you won't have as much time to spend exercising or even being sedentary. Um, Buxton said improving health is something that can and should take place over time. Uh, quote from him, becoming our best selves mean, means being more like our best selves more often. We were able to show that the beneficial effects of exercise and sleep go together and that health risk behaviors like sedentary time affect sleep time later that night. So if we can encourage people to engage in more physical activity and better sleep health behaviors on a more regular basis, it could improve their health over time. Now, I, I, hate this, I hate to break it to these researchers, but duh. I mean, if you sleep better, you're going to feel better. And if you feel better, you're going to want to be more active, right? But sleeping longer doesn't necessarily mean you slept better. Sometimes you sleep longer because you slept crappy that night and you stay in bed longer. And then you kind of lose out on time and you do less. Anyway, in the future, the researchers will continue to follow up with the participants, see how health and health risk behaviors continue to interact and how sleep health influences, how sleep health influences thriving early, in early adulthood. Excuse me. All right, we have one more study to discuss, and we're going to do that right after this short break for a word from our sponsors. Hey, welcome back to the Four Pillar Fitness Podcast. So far in today's research roundup, we've talked about how the brains of teens with antisocial behavior have been shown to exhibit altered activity, and how the positive effects of exercise as it relates to sleep patterns and quality of teenagers can change their lives. Now let's roll into our last study. This study says that obesity is a risk factor for depression and anxiety in children and adolescents. Again, it's kind of a no-brainer, but it's an interesting study nonetheless. It's from the European Association for the Study of Obesity. And according to the report, obesity is linked with an increased risk of developing anxiety and depression in children and adolescents. That's independent of traditional risk factors such as parental, psychiatric illness, and socioeconomic status. Um, and this research was, was re, uh, presented at this year's European Congress on Obesity in Glasgow, United Kingdom. So the nationwide study in Sweden compared over 12,000 children who had under, undergone obesity treatment with more than 60,000 matched controls, and they found that girls with obesity were 43% more likely to develop anxiety or depression compared to their peers in the general population. Boys with obesity faced a similar problem. They were at a 33% increased risk for anxiety and depression compared to their counterparts. Uh, Mrs. Louise Lindbergh from the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, who led the research, said this, quote, we see a clear increased risk of anxiety and depressive disorders in children and adolescents with obesity compared with a population-based comparison group that cannot be explained by other known risk factors such as socioeconomic status and neuropsychiatric disorders. 
These results suggest that children and adolescents with obesity also have an increased risk of anxiety and depression, something that healthcare professionals need to be vigilant about. Anxiety and depression are reported to be more common in children with obesity than in children of normal weight, but it's unclear whether the association is independent of other known risk factors. So previous studies were hampered by methodological limitations, including self-reported assessment of anxiety, depression, and weight. Again, most depression and anxiety studies don't have really good objective measures. It's a lot of self-reporting. And of course, it's also difficult in these kinds of studies to accurately reflect the extrinsic sources of anxiety and stress, those that come from outside the person. So being teased or abused or bullied by peers and other children because of being overweight, not to mention the stress of seeing obesity touted as a disease and a horror all over the media really certainly can't help. Comparisons to athletic children or those of normal weight are also likely to weigh on a child or an adolescent. But these would be hard to measure except through self-reporting, which again would be hampered by numerous personality and psychosocial factors. So to provide more evidence, the researchers from the Karolinska Institute in Sweden conducted a nationwide population-based study to investigate whether obesity is an independent risk factor for anxiety or depression. They had 12,507 children between the ages of six and 17 from the Swedish Childhood Obesity Treatment Register. That that doesn't even sound like a good idea either, by the way. Um, Let's put a bunch of fat kids on the register and make them feel even fatter. That's that's fantastic. Uh, Between 2000, so these kids, sorry, they they gathered 12,000 kids between the age of six and 17 from this register between 2005 and 2015 and they compared them to 60,000 controls uh, from the general population matched for sex, year of birth, and living area. The research team adjusted for a range of factors known to affect anxiety and depression, including migration background, neuropsychiatric disorders, parental psychiatric illness, and socioeconomic status. A total of 4,230 children and adolescents developed anxiety or depression over an average of 4.5 years. Obesity was clearly linked with a higher risk of anxiety and depression in childhood and adolescence. Um, Girls and boys with obesity were more likely to be diagnosed with anxiety and depression than those in the general population over the study period. Um, In further analyses, kids with neuropsychiatric, or I'm sorry, excluding kids with neuropsychiatric disorders or family history of anxiety or depression, the risks were even higher. In particular, boys with obesity were twice as likely to experience anxiety or depression as their normal weight peers, while girls with obesity were one and a half times more likely. So a quote from Ms. Lindbergh, given the rise of obesity impaired mental health in young people, understanding the links between childhood obesity, depression, and anxiety is vital. Further studies are needed to explain the mechanisms behind the association between obesity and anxiety and depression. So the authors acknowledge this was an observational study and cannot prove that obesity causes depression or anxiety, but only suggests the possibility of such an effect. They point to several limitations, including that there's no weight and height data in the comparison group. Unmeasured confounding, uh, unmeasured confounding may have influenced results, and that rates of anxiety and depression may be underestimated since a large population of individuals suffering from these conditions do not seek medical care. Here's the bottom line, guys. It, if your kids are overweight, it is a risk for anxiety and depression. We know how that works socially, we know how that works psychologically, and how it works emotionally. Um, you can always get them some help and, and Folks like me are willing to help, absolutely willing to help. Uh, So that's been the research roundup for this episode. I hope you found it interesting and maybe even learned a little bit of something. As always, uh, you can reach me uh, through the the podcast at anchor.fm. Leave me a voice message um, on Instagram at Coach Phil Houston. Spell the last name right, H-U-E-S-T-O-N. 
um, on Twitter at Phil Houston, again, spell last name right, H-U-E-S-T-O-N. Um, and again, thank you so much for listening. And as always, keep the faith and keep after it.